Hey, wait a second. We're all ducks in tuxedos. And then we can take the tuxedo off, right? And we can just all be ducks together. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we go in-depth on the topic of imposter syndrome. What it is, what it isn't, and what you can do about it. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 70. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Josh, welcome back. So I got to mention this. You don't have to, but you will. I've got, I've yeah, got to. Will. Go ahead. Our PhD, get, it out your, get it out of your system. Our PhD alma mater, the University of North Carolina Tar Heels, won the national championship as we record this on Tuesday last night. Yeah. Uh, you stayed up. I did not. But I looked at the graph on 538 about what happened. So that, that seemed exciting. Those 538 win percentage graphs are the dumbest thing. No, ever. they're fantastic because they, they tell me whether it was a boring game or an exciting game. That's true. Maybe that is a better use for them than an actual, what percentage chance does this yeah, team I, have of winning? I, no, no, no. It has nothing to do with that. But I scroll through and I see, wow, it got really crazy after the second, you know, after the first half. And then, you know, they pulled it out at the end. Yeah, you're the only person I know that would get more excitement not out of watching the game, but out of looking at the at the graph, <laughs> the yes. graph over time. My nerd credentials have been established. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Dan, I posted a photo on our Twitter feed uh, of us back in 2005 as grad students uh, for a previous national championship that we celebrated. It was exciting. One time I will go and uh, walk through the streets with 50,000 people and never again. All right, Dan, I have, I'm really excited. I have a beer news exclusive do you have a sound effect for that at all? <laughs> Gonna have to get one. Do, 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 glove, glove, glove. <laughs> all right, Dan, you might remember a few weeks ago, I told you about my travel down to Tampa, Florida, where I discovered the uh, Hialai IPA. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It looks like JLA, but it's pronounced Hialai. Yeah, and that was from Cigar City Brewing. And I was totally bemoaning the fact that I discovered this delicious IPA in Florida, but I couldn't get it here in North Carolina. And so I put together my underground network of grad students who could funnel the highlight uh, to me back here in North Carolina. You really should have lived in the 20s, like with the <laughs> bootlegging and the speakeasies. You would have been good. I would have fit right in. Yeah, you would have. Well, it turns out... Josh Gatsby. <laughs> like all of a sudden, in the past probably three to four weeks, like literally since that episode aired, I don't remember how long ago that episode was, but not that long ago, I started getting tweets and emails from people who cited Highlight in bars and beer stores here in North Carolina. And you were excited, I assume. I was really excited, but I was a little confused. Like, well, how is this? Because I actually checked the distribution map when I got back here. North Carolina was not one of the states with, with Highlight. So it turns out Oscar Blues, who brews here in North Carolina, purchased Cigar City Brewing. And one of the reasons Cigar City wanted to increase distribution of Highlight, which is their most popular brew. So technically, if we had continued home brewing, made a really great beer, we could have... Uh been purchased and made famous. I think that really would have been the pinnacle of our dream. Yeah. Is to be yeah. bought out. Well, next time. All right. But it gets better than that. So so that was actually why all of a sudden, since I got back and discovered this highlight, 
It was purchased by Oscar Blue. Now it was being distributed all over North Carolina. Now I've seen it all over the place. While I was in my favorite bottle shop right down the street from my house over the weekend, there was a big display of the highlight. And I just mentioned to the guy at the counter, like, oh, this is great. I just discovered this beer. I was in Florida, and I'm happy you can get it here now. And he said, oh, well, it turns out highlight is now brewed in North Carolina. <laughs> so have you gone swimming in the vats yet? How crazy is that? I, I really feel like in some small way, I had something to do with the this. the Hello PhD bump, I assume. I mean, I discovered this yep. beer. I can't get it here. Next thing I know, it's actually brewed in my home state, and it's all over the place. Now get us that one from New Hampshire where you have to wait in line <laughs> out in a cornfield. That's right. Give it six weeks, and uh, it'll okay. be in, we'll look forward to in it. the grocery store. So, Dan, in honor... That's a long story, and that's not what we're drinking because you have <laughs> banned IPAs from the studio. I did. So, ironically, we can't drink the highlight, but in honor of me being able to now get highlight. Uh, thanks to Oscar Blues Brewery, we're drinking an Oscar Blues Brew, the Old Chub Scotch Ale. And Scotch Ale is notoriously high gravity and a, a little bit sweet, so you don't realize what you're doing. Yeah, this is an 8%er, and this is really malty. I would say this is the maltiest beer we have had on the show. Yeah, it's it's um very, very dark, and I would say pretty sweet. And I don't think it tastes like 8%, and that's the danger. You could, you could pick up a six-pack of these, split it with some friends, and you'd be falling down the stairs. Yeah, it's almost dessert-like to me. You can go ahead and nurse that for the rest of the show. <laughs> that's right. A good good caramel flavor. Um, Perfect uh, beer for a show about imposter syndrome, because this beer doesn't seem like it is uh, what it actually is. Ah, what a good segue into what we're going to talk about later. But first, science in the news. All right, Dan, did you ever stay up late in the lab working on experiments or, or maybe stumble upon some interesting findings by mistake? Uh, yes, that's usually the best time to stumble upon findings is late. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like really key findings that happen because something turned out by accident. Yeah, and you're exhausted, so you're probably more generous with what you found. Yeah, well, I want to tell you a story about Jesse Delia, a grad student at Boston University. And so Jesse was conducting some field work in Panama, and he'd been working really late into the night. I guess um, he's an evolutionary biologist and was was out by the streams and in the rainforest. It had been a really long night. It was 4 a.m. His project wasn't really going that great, and he was ready to head home for the night. So anyway, on his way back from the stream where he was collecting data, he stopped by this spot to have a look at a pair of mating frogs that he had observed earlier. He saw them mating earlier, and they were still <laughs> at it. Where is this show going, John? We're going to have to request a non-clean rating from iTunes. But anyway, this didn't relate to his project, but he wanted to, to see what they were up to. And so it turns out these were a species of glass frogs. And, and what he saw was it was a mother who was laying on her eggs and on this leaf. And so he started nudging the, the mother frog with his finger, just like you do, uh, but she wouldn't budge. Now, this might not seem like a big deal to you. The big deal to the mother frog. Well, that's probably, probably true. But for Jesse, this was actually a eureka moment. So it turns out that people who are experts on frogs, um, the conventional wisdom on glass frogs was that they don't do anything for their eggs after they're fertilized. So these little pre-tadpoles are kind of on their own. And in the rare case, a parent does take care of the froglets. It's the dad. Typical in the animal <laughs> kingdom. Am I right? I don't know about that. Okay. But what's interesting is parental care in general is thought to be rare in frogs. And only 10 to 20% of known frog species actually are thought to care for their offspring at all. Now, in birds and mammals, 
it's pretty normal for the, the mother to take care of the offspring. And evolutionary biologists think this could have to do with how fertilization happens. So with internal fertilization and animals who do that, the father is just less certain that the offspring actually belongs to him. So males may have evolved to contribute less to offspring care. But most frogs actually use external fertilization where the moms release all the eggs out into the water, then the frog dads release all the sperm to fertilize them. So there's more of this sort of direct observation by the father that, okay, these are my offspring, I should try to protect yeah, them. Yeah, you know which ones are yours, that makes sense. Yeah, but these glass... Otherwise, I'm headed to the bar. That's right. That's, that's the normal male response. <laughs> that's true. Um, and, you know, it turns out other um, amphibians like salamanders who utilize internal fertilization, they tend to have moms that care for their offspring. But these frogs, if you looked in your frog textbook, uh, it said glass frogs don't at all care for their young. Okay, Stand by, I'm looking up glass frogs in my frog textbook just a second. <laughs> uh, yeah, I see that you're correct. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that's what was cool about what Jesse saw and why he actually went back to take another look was, huh, here's this glass frog laying on these eggs and this wasn't a fluke. Like, I'm trying to flick her off with my finger, and she won't budge. And so, it turns out Jesse completely changed his project, partnered up with another grad student, Lara Valencia, who was in Colombia, and they started studying this. So, they studied 40 different species of glass frogs and found out in every species they looked, they found mothers caring for their offspring. So, it blows up the notion of internal versus external fertilization and the role of the male, right? Yeah, so that was a that was a surprising part. New theory on evolution. And so it turns out what the mom was doing, these mother frogs soak up liquid from the dew on leaves, and then they deliver that to the eggs and make this kind of protective jelly that protects the eggs from predators. And they mentioned katydids and snakes. Although I think I would take my chances with a katydid over a snake. Uh, but apparently this thick jelly kind of prevents... Uh, predators from eating the eggs. They soak up dew, they release the liquid, and I assume they bake like pizza rolls for the kids when they get hungry. I guess that's what, uh, that's what moms do. Well, so it turns out in reality, in the wild, when they were observing this in different frogs at different times, most of this brooding behavior typically occurred between fertilization and five hours later. So that's one oh, reason. That's a very short motherhood. Yeah, so that's one reason why they think it might have been underestimated is because people just... It was so brief, such a brief window, people just just missed it. But they actually did some research and found out this brief window of maternal or paternal care had a significant impact on the survival of the offspring. Really just setting up the nest, keeping the eggs moist and happy. Yeah, and protected. And so what I thought was cool about this day, and the reason I bring it up, is there was a quote by Jesse, and what he said was, we were completely wrong about what we thought was going on in this group. And by accident, by staying out a little too late, we found out all these other things. And so the results of their research were really a reminder of how valuable things like field work are, especially when we have all this discovery that happens in like genetic labs or these molecular biology labs like we're used to. Uh, and you know, Dan, I mean, we did a lot of genetics in the lab, a lot of molecular biology, which is really just moving small volumes of liquid into other small volumes of liquid. Maybe we did some cell culture or animal models, but there's really no substitute for actually getting out there and observing the real thing in nature, in its real environment. Um, and maybe it's important to do, do both. Yeah, it's that exploratory, the discovery-based science that I think some of us miss. Um, it just doesn't happen in the, the field of biomedical research that you and I were in. But I agree with you. It was still really important and good for uh, Jesse and, and the work he did to 
challenge the status quo. I'm sure it was not easy getting his paper through review if everybody always believed that the females didn't take care of the eggs. Yeah, and one thing I think is really cool about this fieldwork stuff is, and I, we can post the link in the show notes, but there are these photos of the frogs doing this and actually a video of him. NSFW. <laughs> a video of him nudging this uh, these eggs and the mom not moving. I thought that was pretty cool. He should have gotten a Katie did finger puppet to see what happens. <laughs> Here, check this out. See, there's the mom. Oh, yeah. She's ready to mess him up. You can see it in her eyes. And you know, normally, Dan, I mean, have you ever seen a frog and you like stick oh, your yeah, finger up and jump a mile gone. away? But, I mean, look, I mean, he's really, he like pinched it. He like, it's not going anywhere. So I don't know. I think it's cool, Dan. There's still so many things we don't know about. Pretty neat. So many things. So what I want, Dan, I guess to, to wrap this up, this got me thinking about how cool field work is and kind of how foreign it is to my experience doing science and doing research. So I want to hear from people doing field work. So if you're out there, if you're a biologist or whatever, and you're out there doing some kind of interesting and cool field work, let us know. Send us a message through Twitter, email us, podcast at hellophd.com. And we absolutely want to know about it and would love to talk to you for a future show. Excellent. All right, Dan. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. We've gotten lots and lots of emails about this, and I think it is in the zeitgeist of graduate students. And even we did our survey recently, and it came up a couple more times. And I think it's really, it's probably ironic. I don't know if that's the right word that maybe one of the reasons we haven't addressed this topic yet is maybe we have imposter syndrome about talking about imposter syndrome. Totally meta. I mean, we know it's so important, but yeah, it's like, but, I don't want to mess who are it we? up. Yeah, right? who are we to who, talk what about do we this? Know? Yeah. <laughs> People are experiencing this painful thing. What are we going to say about it, right? That's right. Uh, but it is important, and we do want to talk about it. And, and I just wanted to read an excerpt from one of the emails we received on this topic. I started grad school later on at 30. Since the beginning, rotations and classes, it crosses my mind that every other student works harder, better, faster, stronger. Uh, that's a Daft Punk reference. Apparently. Yeah. Not a, I don't know a lot of Daft Punk. They're fresh out of college, and I haven't been in the classroom for over 10 years. Who am I kidding? I don't belong here. I suck at all of this. What was I thinking when I thought I could do it? Sooner, my PI will think I'm a fraud. Fake it until you make it doesn't hold all the way through. I know why I'm here, science is my career. For 10 years, I've been shaping it to become a fruitful researcher, and these irrational fears sabotage my productivity and limit my potential. Eventually, I fear that I'll crash and burn by this overwhelming feeling that my science sucks, and I should be doing much better to catch up with my peers. Yep, I, I think um, people will hear their own experience in there. And whether you're 30 and starting what you consider late or not, um, looking around at your colleagues and saying, everybody else belongs here, but I don't. Dan, you, you probably remember this. Um, you know, I'm hearing some of these quotes um, that this person is saying, I don't belong here. What was I thinking? I remember at the end of my first year of grad school, do you remember I was ready to drop out and go to dental school? You're going to be a dentist. <laughs> Shoulda, coulda, woulda. I know. Man, think how much money. Instead of a podcast, I'd have a yacht by yep. now. <laughs> but man, I think... I think this sums up what maybe a lot of people really are dealing with. So let's just jump into it, Dan. I know you've done a lot of reading on imposter syndrome, so let's, uh, let's talk about it. I want to start out with a description of what it might feel like to be a grad student with imposter syndrome. Okay, you remember applying to grad school, Josh? Like it was yesterday. 
Okay. This probably wasn't your experience, but maybe you'll see aspects of yourself here. So imagine that you filled out uh, your applications. There were some essays. Maybe you took a little more time than all your peers to get some more experience because you know they were coming out of undergrad and they felt like they were ready to go, but maybe you didn't feel like you were ready. You needed just a little more time in the lab. So you took maybe one or two or three more years. And maybe then you even still didn't feel ready. And you had pretty good GRE scores, but you're, you're sure that maybe that was a fluke. Maybe the testing apparatus wasn't right, and you just got lucky that day. You had publications, but you know technically that's just because your mentor was really nice. It wasn't because you did a lot of work. So you worked on your application, you sent it in. As soon as you got that sent off, you were pretty sure that they were going to reject you. Like, there's no way that they were going to be tricked by this application you sent in. You waited around, you were kind of making plan B, when you got a letter in the mail, it said you were invited to interview. Or I guess they probably do it via email now. Yeah, it's all email. But actually, I think I remember getting my first email for uh, an interview. And yeah, it was almost like this surprise. Like, well, now what do I do? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, were, you, were you nervous sending it off? Did you think that I'm going to send out 10 of these and only get one back? Yeah, you know, I can't remember what I thought at that point. But I can definitely remember trepidation when I got that first interview offer. It became really real. And like, how am I, what am I going up against? I'm just from the small liberal arts school. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, what do I know? Like, like, I don't know. So did you do any prep before your interviews? Did you go online and try and research who you were going to speak to or what the research program was like? Oh, yeah. For my first interview, I definitely looked up some of the faculty and I looked up some of their papers. And, um, oh, yeah, I did, did all that stuff for the first interview. <laughs> yeah, right. For the first one. <laughs> yeah. Right. And then you get there, you know, it's the, the day of the interview. You're meeting all these people. They all, you know, I was there. You were there. Everybody seems to be brilliant. Oh, and everybody else seems so confident. They're all extremely confident. They all have much more experience than you do. They're all, not, nobody seems nervous but you. Um, and it just makes you feel smaller and smaller and smaller. So you get into your first faculty interview and your heart's pounding, but but you try and hide it. You answer the way you think that you should be answering. Um, and you manage to get through it. Maybe a few mistakes. But you go through interview after interview. And uh, the whole time, you're just like putting up this front of, of a confident, competent scientist. Even though in the background, you're pretty sure that you're not as good as all these other people. Yeah, you're kind of hoping... Like, oh, can I just keep up the ruse long enough that they won't find me out? Exactly, yep. And you, and you do manage to get through it. You're, of course, exhausted by the end of the day. But you go home after that, that process and you're like, well, I'm almost positive that I'm not going to get in. I, I messed it up. I was terrible. I answered question number 14 the wrong way and they're going to they're gonna kick me out. But you get accepted. And you wonder, you're like, did they really make a mistake? Are they just really bad judges of character? Like, why didn't they see through my... My tricks. Did I just fool them? Must not have got enough applications this year. Yeah, something wrong. <laughs> but but you get in and you you go. And now is day one of classes. And you meet all your new colleagues. And they're all still really confident. And they're all still, uh, you know, they've got all these research papers. And you pick up an article for your first class. And it seems like everybody but you has understood figure 27. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember pick up some papers and... And wonder, is this actually in English or is this, this can't be anything I've read before. But then the guy across the table is explaining it like he was the one that did the research. And, and you just feel smaller and smaller, but you've got to keep bringing this, this imposter, this, this scientist that you believe you should be to the table. And this goes on for the next four or five years. 
and it gets worse and worse. Every time you achieve a new level, you feel more out of water, out of place. You might get a postdoc and a faculty position and advance to the head of your department and people still feel this way. Imposter syndrome really is belief that despite all the achievement you've got, these degrees and honors and grades and test scores and recognition, that you don't feel successful even though you have all those things. And you think that there were mistakes, there was misgrading, there were people that are bad judges of character. You think, maybe I just got really lucky, um, but it's certainly not because of what I did and that you're just fooling everybody. Yeah, I can remember coming towards the end of graduate school and and I was pretty sure that a postdoc was what I wanted and needed to do. But I think I think this is a common experience for a lot of grad students. Sometimes your confidence can be at an all-time low as you near the end of your PhD, which is kind of crazy because you're on the precipice of obtaining this degree that such a small percentage of people get. But for some reason, you feel like your abilities, you have the least confidence in your own abilities that maybe you've had in your entire life. And I remember feeling that way. And, and my PI had been asking me like, oh, have you started thinking about um, other advisors to contact about your postdoc? And I got to be honest, like, I just didn't feel, I'm like, what do I have to offer? Like, who is going to want to take me into their lab? And so at some point, because I was tired of him asking me and he was probably wondering why I wasn't doing it. I went to his office, I sat down and I was just, I laid it all out there. I said, look, you know, I, I don't know that I feel confident. I don't know that I can do a postdoc. I don't know that I'm ready. And I can remember very clearly my advisor, he was he was a tenured professor. He was a director of graduate studies in the department, um, a well-respected person in our department. And he told me, he said, you know what? Every day I have to fight feeling the exact same way. He was like, I look around at my colleagues and they're all so smart. They have it together. And I feel like, man, I should be where they are. They know so much more than me. Um, so I have to keep reminding myself that that I can do this. And I was like, oh, on one hand, I was like, wow, that makes me feel a lot better. Then on the other hand, I was like, oh, crap, this doesn't ever improve. Yeah. But I was so thankful he shared that with me, um, this person that I really looked up to and respected. Um, and it gave me the motivation I needed to kind of overcome that imposter syndrome that I was dealing with at the time. Really powerful story. And, and you had a, a benefit because you had somebody a mentor who could you felt comfortable enough explaining how you felt and that mentor was comfortable of saying look this is how everybody feels this is how i feel um now imagine you advanced far enough in your career maybe you're at his level who do you go tell that to yeah so you're kind of left to deal with it on your own um, so i think it, it gets harder as you progress but um it's, it's a really salient thing in, in graduate school it seems like it's affecting a lot of people and i don't think you know, this is not a, a binary thing. I, ha I feel imposter syndrome or I don't. It's, it's a scale. It's a gradient. It's a spectrum. And probably everybody f feels aspects of it at different times of their, their graduate school career. Yeah, Dan, I know you did a little reading on imposter syndrome this week. So, so how long has that term, imposter syndrome, actually been in our vocabulary? Yeah, if you want to get into the literature, which I recommend because it's interesting, it was originally described as imposter phenomenon, and it was in uh, 1978 in a paper by Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes. And they were studying high-power women in basically in academic careers and, and positions of power. And at the time, they, they really believed that this was an issue that affected women, that, that this feeling that you were out of place, that all of the good things that you had achieved were actually the result of uh, somebody else's mistake or, or feeling lucky. Um, but, but as research has gone on, they found out that this affects men and women across the board. And so um, I have a, a, 
one of the more recent papers has uh, a survey that you can look at these questions and you can rate yourself whether I feel this or I don't feel this. And I just wanted to read through a couple of them because I think it gives more color to what imposter syndrome feels like. And then you can see if you, if you see yourself really strongly in these questions or if uh, that doesn't sound like me or maybe just once in a while. So let me just read a couple of these. Yeah, and I see from the notes, this is called the Young Imposter Scale or YIS. So I assume people could find that. This is. This is not the original uh, test and we'll link to both. The original one that, that Clance came up with has been most used. This is a, a shorter version, um, but I think it's better for the radio. So okay. let me just read a couple of these. Do you secretly worry that others will find out that you're not as bright and capable as you they think you are? Do you sometimes shy away from challenges because of nagging self-doubt? Do you tend to chalk your accomplishments up to being a fluke, no big deal, or a fact that people just like you? Do you hate making a mistake, being less than fully prepared or not doing things perfectly? Do you tend to feel crushed even by constructive criticism, seeing it as evidence of your ineptness? When you do succeed, do you think, phew, I fooled them this time, but I may not be so lucky next time? Do you believe that other people, students, colleagues, and competitors are smarter and more capable than you? And do you live in fear of being found out, discovered, or unmasked? Uh, you can imagine a person answering yes to a lot of these questions is having a pretty terrible experience in graduate school. Yeah, so you listed off eight different questions related to imposter syndrome. So I was mentally answering to myself. So according to this scale, what would my yes or no answers tell me? What would my number of yeses or nos um, So on this particular this scale, uh, the way that they scored it is if you respond yes to five or more, it would be considered a positive finding of imposter phenomenon or imposter feelings. There's an, another scale, the Clance scale, and that will give you a score between, I think, one and 100. So you can kind of find out where you are in that spectrum. But um, I think some of the, I mean, certainly if you go through grad school and you don't, you don't chalk up that experiment that worked because it was a fluke, or if you never get criticism from your PI and feel terrible about it, um, you probably haven't been through grad school. But yeah. the question is, is this a, a consistent feature for you? Yeah, or I think a really common aspect of of being a graduate student in a research career is, you know, invariably your experiments are going to fail 75% of the time. And it could be very easily to internalize that as, oh, this is some function of my own ineptness, which I think was one of the words used in the test, and not just, hey, this is how science is. It's really hard, and we're trying to figure this out as we go. So it's the process. It's not me as an individual. Yeah. Do experiments fail, or did I fail at experiments? And it's really a lot about how you understand science works and, and whether you believe that it's a, a personal trait that you have or whether it's just, oh, this is kind of out in the world and it happened. Um, it will really affect how it impacts you. But you'll also see in there a lot of the, the language, a lot of the characteristics really center around this notion of perfectionism where the person who is experiencing this has set these goals for themselves. that They, they have to be perfect. Um, they have to appear to others to have succeeded. Um, and they set these standards that are so high and they have this fear of making mistakes. But the reality is because of this, they are finding every mistake they make, even if they're small, and they're, they're exploding them. So it's just like, I set this high goal for myself. I didn't quite achieve it. So I must be a terrible person. I better work harder next time. And so you get into this cycle of, of seeking approval and uh, workaholism and burnout. And that's what they found in the studies that there was a, a strong correlation between people who had these feelings and basically burning themselves out. And so you can see this is not a, a trait that you want to propagate as a graduate student. 
No, that's absolutely true. You know, one thing I always say to students who I talk to and they're they're dealing with some of these really self-critical thoughts is I will ask them to imagine that they were hearing someone else, hearing a friend of theirs verbalize these exact same critical thoughts to them. And would they think that their friend is a failure? Invariably, they always say, no, I would tell them, everybody, that happens to everybody. You shouldn't worry about that at all. I'm like, exactly. But to ourselves, it's very easy to lose that, um, I guess, that filter or that perspective. perspective, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think there are two ways that this, this comes out. Some people um, work themselves into oblivion. They, they just become workaholics. They um, will burn themselves out. Other people, it, it seems, and this is just reported in the literature, so I don't have a, a lot of experience with it, but um, they will actually take behaviors that handicap themselves. So they'll say, not, not intentionally, but they will start to procrastinate. And then when the task doesn't get done, it's not because they failed because they weren't good at it. They're able to say, well, I didn't, fi- I didn't finish the task because I lost too much time on it. So instead of um, absorbing the criticism of not having the ability that they think they should have, they will find another excuse uh, to sabotage themselves, basically. And it can be really destructive. It's, it's almost as if the, the way some of the papers describe it, they're trying to be found out, that they're putting up this front, but it would be a relief almost if somebody found out that they weren't the scientist or the grad student or the postdoc that they were putting on. Yeah, I actually remember, Dan, this jogged my memory. There was a... A friend of ours, a fellow a fellow graduate student, and I remember we were in a class together, and the student, you know, we had an exam or, or something like an assignment like that, and they just didn't turn it in. And I remember thinking, like, oh my gosh, like, you not it's unheard it? of, yeah. Just turn it in. And, you know, I think they had some reason, like, oh, well, I didn't feel well or something like that. Um, and then eventually later we were talking and kind of in this moment of, of transparency, because we were friends, they put out there that, you know what, I just... I'm afraid I'm not going to do well. And if I don't do well, then the faculty who are in our department are going to think that I'm not able to do this. I mean, it's exactly what you were saying. So it's better for me to not turn this in at all, to not do it at all. And, you know, of course, the real consequence is get a really bad grade than to try and to do and my put best. Put yourself out there and, and maybe and I fail. judged as, yep, as a failure. Yeah. And, and that was a very real thing in this person's life. And it, it's such a painful place. This this topic has been difficult for me. When when we first started getting emails about it, um, you know, I thought to myself, well, I felt some of those things in grad school. But as I thought about it more, I, I thought, you know, I still feel those things about grad school. I still, you know, I, the, the way that I talk about uh, my research on this show says, I didn't think I was that person. And you know, looking back, I was this, I was a uh, playing at being a student or I was doing research, but I wasn't a scientist. And so it's, it's so clear to me now looking at this, that I'm, I'm living that, that, um, imposter experience even after the fact. Now it doesn't hurt me now because that's not the career I'm trying to pursue, but, um, how insidious that 10 years on, I can look back and say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, that, that was my experience too. Yeah, it's almost interesting. It's like a trick that you play with yourself. Well, if I can convince myself that I don't really care, then I can protect myself from, you know, in my mind, this fear of failure, this inevitable failure that I'm likely to encounter. Yeah, and, and so that's, I mean, this is this is where this topic gets difficult for me because I think I don't feel that way in my work now. 
You know, I went on to other jobs where I was certainly out of my element. I went on to, you know, my first job out of graduate school was to do carbon accounting uh, for a greenhouse gas project. I had never done that before. I knew nothing about it. I was certainly learning on the job, but I felt passionate about it. I felt like I could learn it and I, you know, I did the work I needed, but I didn't feel like um, I was this fraud or this fake for five or six years. And so I don't, I don't know how to approach this and, and to tell somebody who's feeling this way, like stick to it. Cause you know, you should, you know, these feelings are, are just feelings and you can work through them. Or if I, if you should say, is this something you really love and you want to do? If so, work through the feelings. If this is something, and, and we've talked about this on the show, if it doesn't bring you joy when you succeed, then maybe it's not imposter syndrome. It's just not the right work for you. No, that's true. But, you know, I do think that, I think imposter syndrome and, and self-doubt really are rampant and ubiquitous in graduate training. I mean, we know... It's a harder environment. Yeah, I, I got much more external um, encouragement and feedback when I was outside of the lab. Well, and I would say too, Dan, in unlike a lot of pursuits, research is not very concrete. At least the payoffs are not very concrete. There's so many times you put 110% thought and effort into something and it fails and you get nothing back. And if you really, it's really sometimes I think asking a lot of someone, especially someone who's still newer to it and doesn't have the experience and perspective to recognize that this is just how it works. Everyone who gets into PhD programs, they have successful applications, which indicate that they were probably successful high school students and they're successful college students. And they had done really great things throughout all of their academic pursuits. Suddenly they're put into an environment where failure is the norm Right, So you've got all these high-functioning people who have probably had lots of positive feedback in academic settings who now are failing at every turn, and there are no carrots. There's all the effort that I'm used to putting in, but instead of getting the A's or the right, high yep. marks or the praise... I used praise, to get straight A's. Now I get contaminated cells. Yeah, so this must mean at any other point in my training, in my academic pursuit, if I was failing this much, I would be like the worst student in the class. I would be a dropout, right? Yep. But now, I don't know, it's hard not to internalize that, I think, in graduate training especially. Um, so I don't know. I think that's why it's really important. I mean, that's the reason we wanted to start this show is we know firsthand how rampant it is, how much we dealt with it, and people around us dealt with it. But what made it even worse was the fact that we weren't necessarily talking about it with each other. That's right. If you believe everybody else is confident and secure and you're the only one experiencing this, it's isolating, it's dehumanizing, and it makes it much more painful. If if you go to your PI and say, I'm feeling like I can't do a postdoc, and your PI says, yeah, I felt that way and I still feel that way. Now, now it's humanizing and, and it brings you together and it feels like it's not you alone against the world trying to hold up this facade. Yeah, because I think really, you know, one of the most powerful ways to combat and beat imposter syndrome is communication with your peers and, and recognizing, wait, I'm not an imposter. I'm the same as all these people around me. I remember there's, there's this poster about imposter syndrome that, that I've seen in a presentation on this topic. And it has all these penguins who are walking down the beach 
and then there's a duck in a tuxedo who's <laughs> like at Classic, the end, yeah. right? But you find out, hey, wait a second, we're all ducks in tuxedos, yeah. Yeah. right? So we're, we're launching Imposters Anonymous. And which, then we can take the tuxedo yeah, off, right? And right. we can just all be ducks together. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And we'll talk, we're going to continue this conversation, I think, in the next episode, because there's so much more to unpack in terms of where these feelings come from. I think they're, in the literature, it describes several different ways that your your family life, your upbringing, your prior experience can make you more susceptible to this type of feeling. Um, and I want to talk more about what to do about it. I think there are, are concrete actions that people can take to sort of manage these feelings, to minimize the, the impact on their research and their careers. And so I do want to get into some of those things in the next episode. So if, if you're listening and you think, well, this is, this is more nuanced. Not every time I, I put on a front is it imposter syndrome. I think you're right. Um, there's an article called The Dangers of Feeling Like a Fake, um, written in the Harvard Business Review a uh, number of years ago. And I think it's got a, a helpful perspective on this. So it uh, says, to some extent, of course, we are all imposters. We play roles on the stages of, stage of life, presenting a public self that differs from the private self we share with intimates and morphing both selves as circumstances demand. Displaying a facade is part and parcel of the human condition. Indeed, one reason the feeling of being an imposter is so widespread is that society places enormous pressure on people to stifle their real selves. So that's one side. We, we have our public selves and our private selves. I'm much nicer at work than I might be when we're out at the bar or whatever. So that's normal. That's true. Uh, that's normal. Yeah, I'm terrible. <laughs> but imposters, he goes on to say, but imposters feel more fraudulent and alone than other people do. Because they view themselves as charlatans, their success is worse than meaningless. It's a burden. In their heart of hearts, their self-doubters believe that others are much smarter and more capable than they are. And so any praise imposters earn makes no sense to them. Bluffing their way through life as they see it, they are haunted by the constant fear of exposure. With every success, they think, I was lucky this time, fooling everyone, but will my luck hold? When will people discover that I'm not up to the job? And, and hopefully you can see the nuance, the, the difference between those two sensations. Um, one is functional as part of how we interact as human beings. The other is a, is a debilitating fear um, and a drive to continually push this facade forward so that people never find out I'm not who I say I am. Yeah, Dan. So I think this has really set the table. You know, I hope everybody thinks a little bit about to what extent do some of these imposter syndrome thoughts, some of these questions you laid out in that, that survey, um, how much are these rattling around in your mind? How big of a part are these really in the forefront of your consciousness as you go throughout your day? And as you think about your own potential and abilities in the lab as a researcher, but also just in general. So what I think we want to do, because this is really a big topic, there's a lot to unpack here. I think what we want to do is next episode, we want to transition into what can you do? Let's say you do deal with this, and maybe maybe you deal with this kind of in the in the first paragraph you read, Dan, in the way that we kind of all are imposters. But maybe, Dan, in those times that some of our listeners might be dealing with right now, where this is really controlling our, our thoughts and our mind, what can we do about that? Yeah, I think that's great. There, there's so much more to talk about. And if you have experienced this, and maybe you're further on in your career, write to us, let us know how you processed it, how you worked through some of those challenges. If you're currently experiencing it, um, write to us. You can tweet to us. We'll obviously uh, be able to keep you anonymous, but 
again, we believe that talking about it is one of the ways that it gets better. And so being able to share some experiences and stories from our listeners, I think will help everybody. Yeah. And maybe if we could encourage one thing this week, it's, you know, find, find some colleagues or, or friends of yours in your program or in other programs and maybe just have a conversation about this. Maybe just plan, maybe even plan a time where you say, you know, hey, other students in my program, this is a thing that we know is, is common in graduate school. Hey guys, listen to this Hello PhD episode. <laughs> even and let's better. discuss it. Like a book club, but more fun. <laughs> That's right. First, download this episode. Better yet, send the link. Drink this Scotch ale, and then we'll talk. <laughs> maybe there's a faculty member that you have really gotten to know and you trust. Uh, maybe that's not even your research advisor. That was one thing that was really helpful to me is understanding even people farther along that I really le- looked up to had a lot of the same struggles. And that was therapeutic for me to to realize that. All right, Josh. Well, hopefully everybody tunes in next time and, and writes to us um, and we can continue the conversation. Dan, something that I certainly have imposter syndrome about is my ability to solve your etymology puzzles. I apologize for that. I feel a little bit bad about that now, but it's good. Actually, I don't even know if that's really imposter syndrome because the reality is I usually don't know the answer. Yeah, and you don't, you don't claim to. You don't pretend like you're going to answer every one, so that's fine. But I feel like everybody else out there knows the answer. They don't. I get, I get answers, but I don't get uh, all of our listeners. We know how many people download, and they do not all play. Okay, well, that's good to know. So there's a couple other people out there. So the clue last week was, because this organ is all flesh, it makes a sweet appetizer or entree. A little bit tougher this week, I think. Think of some organs that people eat. I don't know why. I was thinking about a fruit, but you're, you're going actual organ here. Yeah, like internal organ. Mammals have it. I mean, you know, I was thinking like a pate, like a liver, Could be a liver or yeah. a brain. People eat brains. They, brains and eggs. They do eat brains. Not a good idea, but they uh, do it. Um, yeah. uh, let me give you pancreas? the pancreas. It is the pancreas. You no. Got it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, from the Greek, pan, you know, pantheism and pan-Asian cuisine, pan meaning um, all, and kreas meaning flesh. So uh, pancreas was one of the original, um, what they call sweetbreads. Uh, so those include oh, the pancreas yeah, and right. the thymus and some other... Sweetbread is a very tricky It is term. not sweet. It is not bread. The first time I ordered sweetbread, boy, was I in Oh, have you had it? Yeah. I've seen it. I yep. really, it was not what I expected. I expected a... Sticky bun or a <laughs> I went to a, a very fancy French restaurant a number of years ago with my wife, and they had this thing on the menu. It was just like, the chef will bring you whatever he feels like today. And we said, yeah, sign us up for that. And the appetizer was, um, it was sweetbreads, and it was you know little chunks that looked like kind of like cauliflower, but not exactly. And they had some other stuff on it. Now, did you know what they were? Well, I think in this case out? that was thymus, but it didn't <laughs> matter. the The point is, it is. It's very tender. There's no cartilage. There's no bone. It is It is yeah. all flesh. So our winner this week, <laughs> should we just move on <laughs> now that we've got everybody's attention? Go for it. Our winner this week was Krishna. And uh, because we're so late with the recording on the, uh, the basketball game, I get to announce who it is. So that's fun. That's exciting. That's the winner this week. And we'll be sending Krishna an Amazon gift card. Congrats. I'll read the clue. Sometimes it takes more than friction to rub cells from a culture dish. It may also take this. I'll read it one more time. Sometimes it takes more than friction to rub cells from a culture dish. It may also take this. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue. And once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. 
If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I'll randomly select the winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. All right, Dan. Thanks for that. Great clue. And thank you, Josh, for bringing the scotch out. We are continuing the non-IPA streak. Yeah, I think if I was having a plate of sweetbreads, I would pair it with this lovely old chub scotch ale. Where do you think the sweetness comes from in this scotch ale, Josh? <laughs> the breads. <laughs> Just a squeeze of pancreas into each glass. Mm-hmm. We want to thank everyone who has been donating to the show, who's been contributing to the show through our Patreon link. If you would like to help support the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash hellophd, or you can click on the Patreon button on our website. If you have a topic you want to talk about on a future show, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can tweet at us at hellophd. I have been really enjoying all of the Twitter activity, hearing about what you guys are up to research-wise since our last Twitter episode. Josh loves the Twitter. Keep tweeting at him. Makes my day every time. Um, So if you're out there in Twitter land, um, or if you're a listener who's new to Twitter, get on there and tweet at us and let us know who you are and what you work on. All right, Josh. I guess we'll see you next time. All right, Dan. See you next time. (laughs) Uh, These mating frogs didn't relate to his... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> go on, go on. Ma- we are adult scientists. This is a biological discussion. Go for it. So these mating frogs were not part of his project, but how could you not go back and take get another look? <laughs> oh my uh, goodness! We need to get we need to get Jesse on the show. <laughs> we do. I, we definitely do.